0: nuclear russian roulette the situation at Ukraine's zaporizhia 6 reactor nuclear power station continues to be dire with increased shelling munitions stored on site disconnection from the power grid which maintains cooling of the radioactive fuel rods it is a mess and if you're wondering what's at stake here if there should be an extended loss of electricity to the site and the plutonium-contaminated fuel rods in the spent fuel pools overheat, it takes a genuine nuclear expert who's willing to tell you the truth and make it clear so that when he tells you...
1: A fuel pool fire would be 10 or 20 Chernobyls. And, of course, there's six fuel pools. So, you know, you're looking at potentially 100 times worse than Chernobyl if the fuel pool were to catch on fire.
0: And that's just one of the many risks posed by what's happening at those nuclear reactors in Ukraine. Well, when nuclear engineer Arnie Gunderson puts the danger in such clear, unavoidable terms, it probably will start to dawn on you that, yeah, the temperature is definitely rising very quickly in that terrible, awful seat that we all share. Chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education and a licensed nuclear reactor operator. He tells us about the latest situations at the Zaporizhia 6 reactor power plant in Ukraine, which is still under Russian control and being used as a pawn in a potential nuclear endgame. And for a ray of hope, we hear from two young activists in Wales who are coordinating a seven day march between two defunct nuclear power plants to make the point that, and here I quote their materials, climate justice cannot be achieved by nuclear energy. Boy, doesn't that just say it. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than you are ever going to get out of California Gavin Nuke Newsom. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August thirtieth, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out in Ukraine, where as of last Thursday, the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant, Europe's largest nuclear power plant, lost connection to the power line at least twice during intense shelling. The two remaining operating reactor units were both disconnected from the electricity grid, and their emergency protection systems were triggered. A total of 17 shells were fired, four of which hit the roof of Special Building No. 1, where 168 assemblies of U.S. Westinghouse nuclear fuel are stored. Ten shells exploded near a dry storage facility for spent nuclear fuel, and three more near a building that houses fresh nuclear fuel storage. It is said the radiation situation at the facility remains stable. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said, Russia has put Ukraine and all Europeans one step away from a radiation disaster. Authorities in the Zaporizhia region have begun to distribute potassium iodide pills to residents living near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and within a 50-kilometer radius of it, while effective at blocking radioactive iodine-131 from uptake by the thyroid. Potassium iodide offers no protection from other radionuclides that may be released. And now, for a look at some more of the evil numnutsery coming out of Ukraine, here's... Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Num Nuts out of Week. In the he-said-she-said said game of who's shelling the nuclear reactors at Zaporizhia in Ukraine... Russian state television propagandist Vladimir Solovyov skipped right over discussion and went straight to threat. He said of Zaporizhia, If it blows, we have the protective suits, and we will not stop military actions. Our army was taught to fight under conditions of contamination. Oh, really? Do they know about that? Probably not, because, hey, you're Russia. He then moved on to threaten the United States, NATO, and their allies with atomic annihilation. Of the Americans, he said, "'Guys, you should not have any illusions. NATO should have no illusions. You won't get away with all of this, and you can't hide from us anywhere. We have enough warheads for everyone to get what they deserve. Everyone. And remember, if it blows, we have the protective suits.'" Well, whether it's lead-lined Kevlar or just too many words, Vladimir Solovyov, and everything you stand for, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, numbnuts of the week, an example of evil numbnuts. We will have much more about Ukraine and the situation at Zaporizhia in today's featured interview. We'll also have a link up to an article by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, a Ukrainian climate expert on the Zaporizhia situation and the winter energy outlook. In other news related to the Zaporizhia situation, here in the U.S., the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has issued a security advisory. The information within it is not publicly available because it is designated official use only, securely related information, but it was distributed under the title situational awareness, continuing heightened domestic violent extremist threat environment. It was sent to all affected operating power reactors, including those under construction, non-power production and utilization facilities, decommissioning reactors, including those that are permanently defueled but have not transitioned to decommissioning, fuel fabrication, enrichment, and conversion-deconversion facilities, independent spent fuel storage installations, licensees possessing special nuclear material, and all radiation control program directors and state liaison officers. In other words, any and every nuclear-based facility in the country and those who are responsible for them. This relates to potential domestic terrorism at nuclear facilities by domestic terrorism groups. We'll have more of this frightening information during today's interview. There's a great big nuclear oops brewing in the promotion of small modular nuclear reactors, specifically These designs will require a special type of fuel called high-assay, low-enriched uranium, or if you take the initials from that, it spells out HALU, H-A-L-E-U. That's what it will take to operate, and Russia is currently the only source of commercially available HALU in the world. But the invasion of Ukraine has thrown those plans off course as businesses face pressures to avoid commerce with Russian firms and Congress is considering legislation that would ban imported uranium from Russia. Maryland-based X Energy and Washington State's TerraPower, which was founded by Bill Gates, are two nuclear companies that have been pressing the Biden administration and Congress to prioritize the manufacture of HALU here in the United States. Benjamin Ranke, senior director for corporate strategy at X-Energy, said the company turned over every rock for its fuel supply plan, but Russia is the only viable option. Meanwhile, Jeff Navin, director of external affairs for Bill Gates-backed TerraPower, told the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee in July that TerraPower had resolved that they would use Russian Halu for its initial core load. Isn't it just like Bill Gates to ignore what's going on in Ukraine, except for how it impacts his bottom line? Note that Congress did pass a ban on Russian fossil fuel imports, and which was signed into law shortly after the war in Ukraine began, but it did not include a ban on Russian uranium. If the ban on Russian HALU gets passed, it's goodbye HALU, goodbye small modular nuclear reactors. As this is being recorded, We are in the final 24 hours before the California legislature will decide whether or not to pass a $1.4 billion payoff, gift, subsidy, whatever you want to call it, to Pacific Gas and Electric to continue operating the Diablo Canyon nuclear reactors, both of which were scheduled to be shut down in 2024 and 2025. Explaining what this is about is an article, Keeping Diablo Canyon Lit is Expensive and Unsafe. We'll post a link to it up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 584. Of course, by the time you hear this, the matter may have been settled in the legislature, and you'll hear more about it next week. We'll also link to an article on how the Surfrider Foundation has been testing beach water radiation levels at the San and site in Southern California. Know that results came back higher than the ambient ocean level of California coastal waters impacted by Fukushima. Over to Japan, where the government announced its policy to consider the construction of what they are calling next-generation nuclear power plants, meaning small modular nuclear reactors. This signifies a shift from the previous energy policy, which did not envision the construction of new nuclear power plants or the rebuilding of existing ones. Now, the Japanese government will also consider extending the operating period of nuclear power plants, which had been set at a maximum of 40 years. Note that when nuclear reactors were first designed, the engineers said they should only run for 40 years because after that, the dangers of keeping them in operation would multiply and magnify. The government is also aiming to restart an additional seven nuclear power plants. This despite the fact that there remain serious doubts about the safety and security of nuclear power plants. Of these so-called next-generation reactors, they are still in the process of being built and tested, and there is not a single one yet in operation. Ruiko Muto, a co-chair of the Fukushima nuclear disaster plaintiffs and a resident of Fukushima Prefecture, blasted the government for making such a U-turn. She said, Why has the government not learned from the damage we suffered in the nuclear accident and formulate its energy policy based on that? There are just too many things that have not been resolved 11 years on. Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, is considering abandoning a plan to start removing nuclear debris from a reactor in the wrecked Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant by the end of the year. The plan will be postponed for about a year, due to a delay in the development of a robotic arm that will be used to remove the radioactive debris. And as regards radioactivity in Japan, while that country's nuclear regulatory authority last month announced its approval for the discharge of more than 1 million tons of radioactively contaminated water from Fukushima directly into the ocean, the full extent of the nuclear isotopes in the damaged plant's tanks requires more study. This according to a recent report by Ken Buesler, Arjun Makajani, Robert Richmond, and other radiation experts. They state that there is insufficient information to assess the potential impact that releasing into the ocean contaminated water stored at Fukushima will have on the environment and human health. It's a powerful article, and we will link to it. In Germany... That country's economy minister, Robert Habeck, has said that Germany is unlikely to extend the life of its three remaining nuclear power stations due to the energy crisis. These are all due to close by the end of the year. Habeck pointed out that extending the lifespan of the plants would only save about 2% of the country's gas use and called it the wrong decision given how little we would save. He said that conservation would be key. And if households and industry cut their usage by between 15 and 20 percent, quote, then we have a really good chance of getting through the winter. Norway and the Netherlands will also provide additional gas supplies. Over the longer term, habeck said Germany must expand its investment in renewable energies and phase out fossil fuels. In Pakistan, one-third of that country is underwater after thousand-year rainstorms and catastrophic flooding. The country's climate minister called the flooding a climate-induced humanitarian disaster of epic proportions. Pakistan has six nuclear reactors on the ground and approximately 165 warheads, but there has been no word about the impact, especially at the reactors, of this flooding. In Britain, the lame-duck prime minister, Boris Johnson, has greenlit funding for a new multi-billion-pound nuclear power station, Sizewell C, in Suffolk. The government will make a final decision on its investment next year, but is expected to buy a 20% stake in the plant, costing up to £6 billion. In response, the Stop Sizewell C campaign group said, Whatever way you look at it, this is a very dodgy decision. Has it been made by a lame-duck prime minister who is not supposed to tie the hands of his successor? Or was it, in fact, made before Sizewell c was granted planning consent, lending serious weight to our conviction that this was a prejudiced political decision? In Finland, electricity output at the new Olkiliotu-3 nuclear power reactor dropped to zero on Monday due to a turbine failure during trial operations. The nuclear reactor's operator... TVO, was unable to estimate when the reactor would start supplying electricity to Finland's national grid. It had initially been due to start full-power electricity production in 2009. In Canada, the next land back battleground will be conducted north of Lake Superior as First Nations chiefs say no to nuclear waste being buried on their traditional lands. At South Africa's only nuclear power plant, Coburg, The operating license expires in 2024, and the unit is now supplying only half of its possible power, which has cast doubt on the nation's nuclear sector and proposals to build new nuclear plants. And New Zealand's remarkably clear-headed Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, has published an article in The Guardian entitled, The World Stands on a Nuclear Precipice, We Must Avoid Catastrophe. We'll link to that on NuclearHotSeek.com, Episode 584. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, what a worldwide nuclear mess. Zaporizhia nuclear reactors being weaponized in Ukraine, California's Governor Gavin Newsom trying to sneak through a 20-year extension on the earthquake fault adjacent in brittle Diablo Canyon nuclear reactors, and around the world, flooding, drought, and other climate change dangers are being posed to nuclear reactors. The list is as long as the deadly half-life of plutonium, which is 24,000 years! The nuclear industry shores up its talking points with a multi-million dollar PR budget, endless self-congratulatory press releases, and the time to focus-group their arguments, all to drown out what sane, activist voices are trying to bring to the public's attention. And that's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. Now in our twelfth year of weekly programs, Nuclear Hot Seat is one of the only places where you can get a hit of honest nuclear information, including interviews with genuine experts and frontline activists, a roundup of international news, numbnuts of the week, and the hot story. We take a deep dive into the human and environmental truths of this deadly industry to bring in the stories and insights that the nukesters and their political minions would rather you not know. But in order to keep doing this work, we need your help and the time for a donation would be right now. Try the cup of coffee donation, $5, maybe $5 a month or more. Be it once or a recurring monthly donation, you'll be helping keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running to provide you with this cutting-edge information. It's easy to help us out. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and then follow the prompts to help us with a donation of any size. Do what you can now. And know that whatever that is, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. This week, we again talk with Arnie Gunderson. He is a licensed nuclear reactor operator with more than 50 years of nuclear power engineering experience. Now, as chief engineer for Fairwinds Associates, he testifies on behalf of states, municipalities, NGOs, and environmental organizations regarding the hazards and violations at nuclear reactors and atomic waste sites. After we spoke with Arnie for last week's Nuclear Hot Seat number 583, so many of the points he made about Zaporizhia and Ukraine have come through that it was time for an immediate update for the play-by-play. This time, I spoke with Arnie Gunderson on Monday, August 29, 2022. Arne Gunderson, great to have you back with us again this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Hey, thanks for having me again. You're getting to be a regular, but there's good reason for it. When last we spoke, you gave some projections, some thoughts as to what could go wrong at the Zaporizhia nuclear reactors, the six reactor site in Ukraine, which is currently under the control of the Russians. In the past week, we've seen a number of these actually come about. Explain to us what it was you were talking about and how it has played out in the ensuing week. I think
1: when I'm on, there's not good reason, there's bad reason. What's going on in the Ukraine right now, in Ukraine right now, is really serious. I mean, it, it's not just the Ukrainians, but the uh, Europeans and the IAEA are all aware of just how serious it is. First is this morale. I mean, these guys are watching their village being shelled.
0: These are the Ukrainian nuclear workers who have been continuing to work on site since March, despite the fact that Russia's taken over in order to ensure safety and continuity and that things don't melt down. Would that be an accurate summation?
1: Yes, that's right. And they live two or three miles away in the nearest village. And they're watching explosions in that village pretty much daily. So the Russians, of course, are saying the Ukrainians are doing it. The Ukrainians are saying the the Russians are doing it. There's a line from Manor La Mancha that reminds me of it. It says whether the stone hits the pitcher or the pitcher hits the stone, it's going to be bad for the pitcher. So these guys are sitting there watching their families or dwellings be destroyed reminds me a little bit about after Fukushima, the people on site had no idea if their families were alive. The tsunami wiped out the villages they came from and there was no communication. And that alone is is terribly demoralizing. And then, of course, in Ukraine, the other issue is wherever you go, there's people carrying rifles following you. 1999, I was in the Czech Republic as a guests of a group called Hunuti Duha, which is a derivative of Friends of the Earth. And the owner of the power plant there, temelin didn't want to let us in. But the public pressure was so great, we got a tour. They had four guys with guns, AK-47s following me everywhere. And that's frightening, let alone these guys with Russian soldiers. And if the other thing is, apparently, they're not very well disciplined troops, and they get drunk at night. And fire the rifles into the air and it's got to be terribly demoralizing. And, you know, I think we all know that nuclear power has a really high standard of excellence that you got to maintain. And under that kind of pressure, I just can't see that happening. So my problem, number one, you know, I used to be an operator. So I'm thinking like the people who work there and they have to be under enormous stress and stress makes mistakes. So when you're under stress, you're more likely to make mistakes.
0: I also, in my research, have found out that the nuclear reactors at Zaporizhia, though they were originally built by the Russians with Russian technology, through the years they have gone through Western modifications and equipment changes and upgrades so that the Russians who have been brought in do not have the expertise to run those particular nuclear reactors. There's is much more generic for the Russian models, but this is something beyond that. So the Ukrainians must remain if there's going to be a competent crew working on it.
1: You know, the skills that you have if you work at reactor A are not exactly transferable to reactor B here in the States, even if they're the same vendor. Every reactor is different and you're licensed not to run every reactor in the country or in Ukraine, but to run a specific reactor. Things are in different places. Age of components are different. So the license applies only to that facility and likely only to one or two of the reactors there. So even if the Russians brought in somebody who had worked at a VVR plant, they probably are maybe 80% competent, but You know, we're talking about a technology you need to be 99.9%. So it's not a transferable license. It's not a transferable skill set. And frankly, I don't think the Ukrainians are in any mood to train these guys either.
0: What are some of the other factors that have you
1: concerned? We've had several loss of offsite power incidents in the last week or two. And that has a buzzword in the nuclear industry. It's called a loop loss of offsite power. So they're sort of thrown for a loop. And it happens in power plants that they lose offsite power. A nuclear plant, when it shuts down, right before it shuts down, has about 3 million horsepower in the core. And the core is 12 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet. So think of a barn, 12 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet with 3 million horses running in order. So when they lose power, Suddenly, there's no place for that energy to go. So the plant has to dump that power and and scram and slow the horses down, if you will. That's anticipated, but it challenges the safety systems. And every time you challenge the safety systems, there's a risk. Now you've got to stop 3 million horses and get them down to a mere 200,000 horses in a barn that's 12 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet. Because remember, when a nuclear plant shuts down, the radioactive rubble that's left behind still generates about 8% of the heat. So there's 200,000 horses that have to be cooled. Now, normally when a plant shuts down, it sends power out when it's running, but it draws power in when it's not. And that runs the cooling systems. But when the power is lost, the diesel generators have to turn on. And one of the things we talked about the last show is that these are old Russian diesels that had been planned to be replaced this year. So their reliability is suspect. So every time you challenge the grid, disconnecting the plant from the grid, you fire up old, unreliable diesels. And sooner or later, one or two of them is not going to start. And I think that's in the international community's concern is just that. I've also heard from the Ukraine that they've managed to keep one small offsite power line from a, a coal or a gas plant that's about three miles away open into the plant. But this plant wasn't designed to wheel that power. There's six reactors from reactor to reactor, so I don't know what that can possibly do. When they lose the grid, they got to cool 200,000 horsepower and they got to rely on old Russian diesels to do it. That's not a good thing to happen. Now, when you hear oh, the grid's been reestablished, that's good. They can turn the diesels off. But it takes a day or two to start a nuclear plant up after it's been shut down. And the diesels are way too small. Diesels are five megawatts, and you need 50 or 60 megawatts to turn the big pumps that make the steam flow. So... With the power going on and off and on and off, I doubt it's possible to fire up one of these nukes and generate any power. I can understand why the IAEA and the Ukrainians and the Europeans and the NRC are terrified because challenging systems that the last resort is an old Russian diesel that you've already determined is marginal, that's not a good place to be. And you've got six reactors in that same situation.
0: A quote from you from the last episode was in figuring out with Chernobyl being a unit of measurement, the amount of radiation released from Chernobyl, how many Chernobyls we would be facing at Zaporizhia. And you said that if there was a spent fuel pool fire, that each reactor could produce 10 to 20 times the radioactive release, of Chernobyl, meaning what we're looking at at Zaporizhia is the equivalent of 60 to 100, 120 Chernobyls.
1: The offsite power is what powers the fuel pool cooling systems. The nuclear industry did not assume that you maintain that, that you'd lose power to the fuel pool for more than an hour or two. And the diesels don't have enough power to cool a reactor, and to cool the fuel pool at the same time. So, you know, what, what, what's happening is when you lose off-site power, the temperature in the fuel pool begins to increase because it's not cooled by the diesels. It probably goes up, you know, five degrees in an hour or something like that. Well, if it's at 100, it doesn't take but you know, 20 hours to get the boiling. and It doesn't take another day but to boil off enough water to have a fuel pool fire. So my concern is still real. Yeah, I think you're looking at 10 or 20 Chernobyl's worth of radioactive inventory in these fuel pools that are not cooled by the diesels. And when the grid is lost, there's really no plan B.
0: Wednesday through Thursday was pretty hair-raising because it seemed that almost on not even an hourly basis, sometimes it was 10 minutes, there were updates and news stories coming across. And you and I shared... Many tweets with each other about this with links that Russia had turned off, intentionally turned off, and disconnected Zaporizhia from the grid. So that's already happened. And now they say it has reconnected. But how much of this scenario you've just told us about is still in play to figure out whether anything has stabilized or gone into safety there, or whether we're still on a downward track?
1: Yeah, there was, I lost track of how many times the power was on again and off again. But each of those is one of those loops, loss of offside power. That the Russians deliberately did it is really frightening. Uh, apparently, once they went down because there was a fire near the transmission line that affected the transmission line, so they lost power that way. But to deliberately do it is beyond foolhard. I don't understand the motive for deliberately trying to force a nuclear plant to melt down. It's terribly frightening. I'm glad the IAEA has gotten in there Even though I question their overall objectivity, I think that they're the best we have. Hopefully, we'll learn a little bit more. But their spare parts are dwindling, the morale is hideous, and they constantly lose power. And oh, by the way, guys are following the staff around with guns. So the worst that could possibly happen short of a meltdown.
0: You mentioned IAEA, which as of reports this morning, they are on their way. I don't know that they've actually gotten into the site yet. What will they be looking at? What will they be looking for? And to whom will they be announcing their results first? And might that include the public?
1: Historically, when the IAEA writes a report, it takes six months before those concerns are fall into the public sphere. Hopefully, they would very quickly fall into the UN's knowledge base and quickly begin to affect what the Russians are doing. But what I think they'll be looking at is morale, but also procedural compliance. A nuclear plant runs on procedures, and if you've got people interfering with the process, you begin to have procedural compliance problems, violations, license violations. The other piece of that is that they're running out of spare parts, and hopefully the IAEA will identify that and develop a mechanism to get spare parts in place. I don't believe that there's been any significant radiation releases from the plant yet. There was a discussion late last week about hydrogen leaks, and that's an indication of a degraded power plant. Hydrogen is routinely used in every power plant in the country. It's used to cool the generators. And that's not a nuclear component. That's the thing that makes the electricity. And they're hydrogen cooled. That they have hydrogen leaks is an indication of either poor maintenance or just wear and tear has gotten to the point that that components are failing. So, you know, the IAEA is, I hope, not gonna be just looking at the nuclear side. But the overall condition of the plant, the switch yard, the balance of plant, the pumps and turbines and generators that make the electricity, it's a big deal project. Uh, hopefully the Ukrainians will feel uh, comfortable speaking to the IAEA because you can be
0: sure there's going to be Russians in the room too. Going back to the radiation issue, recently I was sent a news story, one news story out of Italy that cited a 2.5% increase in radiation compared to normal at Zaporizhia. But I have been unable to independently verify this. Have you heard that figure or heard anything about that?
1: I saw that release too. And if I open my Geiger counter here and turn it on, I'll have swings of 30% from minute to minute with cosmic ray changes and normal background variation. Two and a half percent is really hard to measure. And if you've measured it, it's really hard to attribute it to zaporizhia as opposed to just normal fluctuations. Now, if it gets to 10%, I'm on it. And if it gets to 50%, I'm calling my friends in Europe, telling them, get some iodine pills. But a 2% fluctuation less than a 10% fluctuation over an hour. I just don't, it could be that it came from Zaporizhia, but there's an awful lot of possibilities that could also be just as viable.
0: How is this situation playing out in the European countries? Has there been anything other than acknowledgement or perhaps passing out the KI, the potassium iodide pills?
1: I've heard that surrounding countries are Alerting their population to, to the fact that KI potassium iodide pills are available. I haven't seen any mass distribution of them yet, but all the European countries have adequate stockpiles of potassium iodide pills. And unlike a vaccine or something, this is salt of sodium iodide, and these are potassium iodide, they're very stable. So you stockpile it and they last for a decade. I don't know what else they can do. I'm sure within the nuclear establishment, I mean, we're talking about it here, they they probably have more close contacts than we do, are concerned about it. But, you know, there's no way of getting those spare parts in if they had it, and, and likely some of the German or Polish reactors do have it. If they had it, it's got to go through a Russian guard. And so I just think that the blockade of the plant is preventing any spare parts from getting in in meaningful quantities.
0: There was a tweet from Ed Lyman from the Union of Concerned Scientists, who's also a recent guest commenting on Ukraine for nuclear hot seat. And he had a link to an alarming report or alert that was sent out by the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, to all U.S. nukes warning about possible terrorism or possible attacks here in the United States. What, if anything, do we know about that?
1: I would advise all your listeners to follow uh, Ed Lyman's tweets. Uh, Ed Ed is brilliant and does a first-class job of covering the NRC. He discovered an NRC letter that had an attached, detailed report. The letter was open to the public, but the attachments were considered classified and and, uh, were either redacted or just not provided. It was truly frightening. What Ed said was that the letter contained a warning to U.S. utilities to make sure that they can protect against acts of domestic terrorism. Now, you know, I used to work in nuclear power plants, and I was really good friends with a plant manager, a guy named Jim Furland. And, you know, armed guards roam the power plant. They're not following you, but you'll see them walking around. And it's the plant manager now. And he turned to me and he says, You know, Arnie, my biggest fear is not an outside threat. It's how do we know that these guys have our best interest in mind? The, the possibility of a terrorist threat is very real. And the NRC requires that utilities assume somebody on the inside is helping them, one person on the inside is, is helping them. And, uh, you know, I assume a team of five or six people not with heavy explosives and essentially AK-47s or AR-15s, but but nothing uh, more powerful than that and an insider. But what the alert said was that some sort of a domestic terrorism attack, they should be aware of the possibility of it. Now, I don't know if that's in lieu of some intelligence they have on a nuclear issue, or it's just this the spin-off from all the, the issues with MAGA and the and the uh, right-wing uh, threats of violence. But the, the bottom line was that the NRC warned all the utilities to be on the alert for an act of domestic terrorism.
0: Well, we know that nuclear reactor sites, both the decommissioned ones and the ones still in operation, are really semi-permeable membranes. I mean, you can get through there. Diane Turco of Cape Downwinders was taking a reporter from, I forget if it was the NPR station or the Boston Globe, something like that, to show them how easy it was to get on the grounds and next to the spent fuel pool at the old Pilgrim site. And she actually had a many years long court case as a result because they were accusing her of being a terrorist, or doing exactly the thing that a terrorist would do that she was trying to explain to the reporter. It was thrown out of court, but only after a lot of duress. But any of these places, they're not under a Fort Knox-type shield. They are accessible, and they are all potentially dirty bombs on the ground.
1: Yeah, operating nukes have a little more security than Pilgrim after it was shut down. But the single place at Pilgrim that should have been guarded is that spent fuel pool? I mean, that's the same Chernobyl kind of an inventory, which appalled me as well. I've been in, I don't know, 70 or 80 power plants. And you know, you go by a guard and you nod and shake their hand or whatever, and they, they check you out and you go through. For a single person, it's it's it would be difficult to cause a nuclear plant to melt down. But for an organized group, with an insider who's also helping them, or two or three. It could be uh, we, the United States, could easily be hostages to a nuclear hostage situation. And you're right. I mean, it's more than a dirty bomb on on the ground. It's a Chernobyl on the ground if you're not careful.
0: So given that the IAEA is coming into Zaporizhia, if they haven't already... But given the shelling, given the IAEA coming in, given the tenuous nature of the power supply and are the diesel generators going to work or is there power enough? What do we have to look forward to in the coming week or weeks in Ukraine at Zaporizhia?
1: I can't understand why the Russians would use a nuclear power plant for target practice, but it seems to be part of their overall strategy. I could understand a single errant shell in fog of war conditions, but not the, the extent of the damage that's already occurred. They're using it as a shield. You know, they're, they're hiding behind their mommy's skirts, if you will. They have brought in a lot of equipment and a lot of arms, and they're using that facility as a shield. That alone, having all that explosive material right near a plant, is not something that nuclear plants are designed for. I remember Vermont Yankee had a case where he had a Hurricane Irene uh, flooded a lot of Vermont. And all these camps and all these homes had their propane canisters loosened and were floating down the river. And there were hundreds of propane cylinders at the dam that was about a half a mile down from Vermont Yankee. And people said, my God, we never thought of this. We never designed for this. So, you know, the situation in Ukraine is even worse. If I were the Ukrainians, I would shut every plant down. And now you've gone from 3 million horsepower down to 200,000 horsepower, which becomes an easier problem to maintain. And then over time, over a month or so, that 200,000 decays down to 20,000 horses in a 12 by 12 by 12 foot space. It's still a problem. And as a matter of fact, Fukushima Daiichi Unit 4 was shut down for four months, and they boiled their fuel pool almost dry. So it doesn't solve the problem, but it buys you a little more time to have some human intervention. So my first advice would be to shut it down. Apparently, you know, we have winter coming and the grid needs it. The Ukrainian grid needs that power. So that may be why the Russians are using it as a hostage to force Ukraine to the table, just like they're using gas against Germany. The, the net effect is that the best situation would be if the plant shut down and things stayed calm for a week or a month or so, then this decay heat would be down to the point where people would have a day or two to address a problem before it got out of hand. I mean, right now, I think they had two of these plants running. Um, you literally have minutes to address a problem when things go wrong in that situation. So my advice to Ukraine is to shut those plants down and keep them down until this war is resolved. The problem, of course, is winter's coming. That's beyond my comprehension.
0: Irony, we are always open to your insights about what's happening in Zaporizhia and elsewhere in the world with nukes. And for now, I want to thank you for coming on board yet again with a play-by-play of what's going on in Ukraine for Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thanks, and thanks for doing all you do. I really appreciate
0: it. That was Arnie Gunderson, a licensed nuclear reactor engineer and chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education. We will have a link up to Fairwinds, which is spelled with an E, -E, F-A-I-R-E winds.org on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode number 584. Note that after this interview was recorded on Monday, and during my own recording session, we learned that the International Atomic Energy Agency will be allowed into Zaporizhia, but only for one day. Whether it's 9 to 5 or the entire 24 hours, it's not enough time. So this is an example of the Russians fulfilling the letter of the law, but not the spirit of it. And as Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists has already tweeted, one day is not enough.
2: Activists, Activists. Activists. shout out. shout out. shout out.
0: One of the major challenges faced by those who oppose nuclear is the problem of getting young people involved in the movement. Young in this instance often being anyone under 50. So it was terrific to get to speak with two under 30 activists in Wales who are organizing a seven-day anti-nuclear march and demonstration to counter the idea that nuclear energy is in any way a solution to climate change. I spoke with two of the organizers from the Committee for Nuclear Disarmament Wales, Dr. Bethan Jones and Sam Bannon. We spoke on Monday, August 29, 2022. Dr. Bethan Sean Jones and Sam Bannon, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Fill us in on the broad strokes. What is the nuclear situation in Wales?
3: There are two decommissioned nuclear power plants. One called Cefn nuclear power station in Gwynedd, in North Wales, and then the second one is on Enismore, the Isle of Anglesey, called Wilver nuclear power station. They were both constructed in the 60s. They ran in the 70s. And then Charles Vened was decommissioned in 1991, I believe. And Wilva was decommissioned in 2015. The UK government now want to reintroduce nuclear power back into the area through um, small modular nuclear reactors being located on those two decommissioned
0: sites. What is CND Chemruth? Pardon the mispronunciation, which I know must be there. And how long has it been in existence?
3: So, CND Cymru is the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in Wales. Um, It was established in 1981, um, but CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, was established in London in 1957. But then we had a semi-independent group being established then for Wales in 81. We campaign against nuclear weapons. Um, Our campaign extends to campaigning against nuclear energy as well because of the connections between the two.
0: I want to congratulate you on being one of the groups, not all of them, that not only sees the connection between nuclear power and nuclear weapons, but also in talking about the smaller nuclear reactors that are being proposed, you refer to them as small modular nuclear reactors when the industry would rather the N-word not be in there. So you've got it right on both points. Now, your group is planning a seven-day march. What is this march? Where is it going? Who's participating? And why are you doing it now?
2: The march that we're undertaking is actually going between the two decommissioned sites, Strauss and Wilver. The sites that have been proposed for these small modular nuclear reactors. Um, it's about 120 kilometres. The march will incorporate a whole range of the community, not just CND members but also students It's youth-led and youth-focused, so we want it to go hand-in-hand with the youth climate movement, which is quite prolific in the UK. I'm not sure how big a deal that is in the States, but I gather it's a worldwide sort of movement. So we're hoping that those two can go hand-in-hand because, of course, nuclear power is no solution to the climate crisis and um, associated greenhouse gas emissions and the the long-term issues associated with nuclear energy.
0: The one sentence from your press materials that I really resonated with and I think is important is climate justice cannot be achieved by nuclear energy. That states it more succinctly than I think some focus groups have come up with. So that's something that I'm going to be using in the future. I want to focus on how you got so many young people involved in this movement because that's something that seems to be lacking here in the states. Was there a specific outreach to young people? You both seem to be certainly under 60, if not under 30. And we have trouble here in the States getting younger people involved in the movement. How did you manage to do that?
3: To be honest, we are encountering quite similar problems here in Wales. And that was one of the parts of kind of wanting to march against these nuclear power stations. We see so many young people who are incredibly active and vocal within the climate change movement, but they're not necessarily making the links between climate change and nuclear power. So that's one of the outcomes that we want to achieve with this march is to basically spread the word and possibly galvanise more young people into action.
0: Do you have any events or speak outs or meetings that are planned along the route with the local communities?
3: Yeah, we do. We have about six finalized so far. So every place we're going to sleep at overnight, we're going to hold a public meeting or a kind of social event with local musicians, local artists, performers and local speakers, pacifists. So I'm really excited about that part of the march, to be honest. And it's really kind of trying to engage with the local communities as well.
0: What about the media? Have you been doing outreach to the media in each of these locations to try and get a growing number of local stories published?
3: We have been, yes. Um, I've been contacting Welsh media, national Welsh media, but also local Welsh media. Um, We have had some articles published, but the more mainstream media outlets haven't really gotten back to us yet. But we are hoping to get them more involved. But actually, there is a young people's channel called Hanchdom Spin, who basically look at um, the climate movement and politics without the spin, basically, without the um, political jargon behind that all. And they're very interested in this march as well. So hopefully we can get some more publicity through them um, and they have a great outreach in terms of being able to engage with many local young people in Wales. So that's one of our hopes as well.
0: When you reach the ultimate destination at the second of the two nuclear plants that I have a very difficult time pronouncing, what is planned when you reach your destination?
2: We're going to have a rally towards the end with various speakers. Um, some are confirmed, some not confirmed. There'll be representatives from local groups coming, so we're very fortunate to work with a group called PAWB in Anglesey, which in English stands for People Against Wilver B, which is the original power station that existed before these proposals, and a group called Cadna, which is to do with the the second of the two power stations. Cadna is FOX in Cum which
3: yeah, means... I So keeping a BDI on the nuclear power developments in the area.
2: Yeah. So there'll be representatives from both those groups speaking as well. As hopefully some political figures, we'll have some musicians. There'll be singers. I'm hoping to get a group called the Peace Choir up, who are based in Aberystwyth and they attend a lot of anti-arms for anti-nuclear sorts of events.
0: Where do you go from here? Having had this march and this visibility, how do you plan to build upon it and increase your reach
3: if needs be we'll march again next year we want to continue the momentum we'll see how this one goes um i've never organized something like this before sam hasn't either but we have been so so lucky so incredibly lucky to have had the support of more experienced campaigners who have been working um tirelessly over the years to protest against nuclear energy in wales Um, so i suppose it's kind of like keeping the momentum going, making those connections between nuclear power and nuclear weapons more available to young people within the climate movement as well.
2: Yeah, I think just visibility and traction with young people amongst CND, because whilst it's a privilege to work with some older campaigners who've been on some very famous actions such as um, Greenham Common, um, there are very few young people. And if we're able to make the campaign visible to them and attractive to them and make that link between the youth movements on climate, make those links very clear and tangible and something that they can get involved with and feel comfortable, then I think that in itself would be a great success of the campaign. That as an outcome would be a huge aim for us. We'll hope to build on that basically into the future.
0: I would hope that also you would write up the steps that you took to create this and share that with other groups, including here in the United States, because one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you is that you are setting a great example of the kind of action that can be taken and how to wake up young people to the connection between the climate change problem and the fact that nukes are the opposite of a solution. We want you to stay in touch with Nuclear Hot Seat Both of you and your members need to subscribe to the show because we cover nukes all over the world in all of its many manifestations, and we want to include you now that you've been on the show. With any updates for now, I want to thank you, Dr. Beth Jones and Sean Bannon, for being my guests this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. That was Dr. Bethan Jones and Sam Bannon from the Committee for Nuclear Disarmament, Wales. We will have a link up to their website on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 584. Here's hoping that their actions can serve as a role model for comparable actions to take place here in the States and elsewhere around the world, to pass these actions and this activism on to the next generation. In some other shout-outs, congratulations to Angela Bischoff, who is Outreach Director for the Ontario clean air alliance. She published an op-ed in the Toronto Star entitled Ontario's Energy Strategy, the Opposite of What We Need. Of course, we will link to it. We want to point out that Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NIRS, has a new Ukraine resource page, which includes maps, diagrams, and explanations. So if you are following the Russian roulette story being played out at the Zaporizhia nuclear sites in Ukraine, this is a great place to go for your latest information. And Ed Lyman has let us know that Kurt Gottfried has passed away. He was a physicist and Professor Emeritus at Cornell University, Advocate for Peace, and Co-Founder of the Union of Concerned Scientists. He was 93 years old, and he will be missed. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. Linda Pence-Gunter has been on vacation and will be back with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story next week. Hey, how would you like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered by special delivery every week? right to your email inbox. Well, that's a real easy thing to do. Sign up by going to nuclearhotseat.com, look for the big yellow box, put in your first name and an email address, and every week you will get one email with a short description of what's in the episode and a link to the show. You never have to miss another episode again. Or if you prefer, go to your favorite podcast channel and sign up that way. The nuclear news is moving so fast, you deserve to not miss a single episode. We rely on your input to help us find and follow the stories. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. I check that every day, and it's the most guaranteed way to get to me. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything you can do, we appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. That's the name of the program, the URL, and what the hey? if you can pronounce my name, throw that one in too. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that life is short, and potentially getting shorter. So eat the ice cream. That's it. You've just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking.
1: Nuclear hot
2: seat.
0: It's the bomb.